just uh, hello again, how are you? Good afternoon, I'm Colin Harvey from the School of Law, Queen's University Belfast. We're on level nine of the main site tower, which is the new law school building at Queen's. I'm here with my colleague Lee. I am Lee McGowan and I'm from the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. We're looking out over the skyline in Belfast in a beautiful sunny autumn afternoon and we're here to discuss Brexit and its consequences for Northern Ireland. We're over a year on from the vote of the UK to leave the European Union and there's been quite a constitutional debate since then. I think it's setting the scene in relation to Northern Ireland. It's important to underline that Northern Ireland voted to remain in the European Union. It's also essential to underline that there are a number of special and unique circumstances that apply in Northern Ireland to the debate around Brexit. That's been recognised by the UK government, it's been recognised by the Irish government, but perhaps most significantly in the conversations to come, it's also been recognised by the European Union as one of its priority issues in terms of the negotiations. So in some ways the Brexit decision last year has escalated the constitutional questions around Northern Ireland beyond the UK to an EU level as well. Colin and I are going to discuss a series of issues. We're going to look at the Good Friday Agreement. We're going to look at the common travel area. We're going to look at the intriguing issue about a Northern Ireland voice and the whole nature of the UK's negotiations. Is there a voice? And then look at possible options for Northern Ireland or for the UK as a whole. Arguably, Northern Ireland, it's the area in the UK that is most affected by Brexit. There's economic issues, which we may come on to, but I'm going to begin with the politics of all of this. And I think the politics are really not as well understood as they should be. And to understand that, we go back to the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement is a pivotal moment in the modern history of, of Northern Ireland. It was signed in 1998, finally agreed in 1998, after almost 30 years of the Troubles. The Good Friday Agreement, if you break it down, there are three strands to it. They're setting up devolution, the institution of devolved government in Northern Ireland. Unlike Scotland and Wales, there's going to be power sharing a mandatory coalition bringing parties together who have been divided on issues. And this is where a lot of the politics will come into play. The second strand is the North-South strand, which is all about political institutions and the relations of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The third strand is the East-West, and by that we mean the connections between the entirety of the island of Ireland, North and South, and also Great Britain itself. And there's a European dimension to this. It comes into play in terms of the nature of the devolution settlement. The EU continually emphasises the issue of the peace process. They believe that they were also involved in helping bring peace to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has now had 20 years of living under the Good Friday Agreement. There has been peace. We look around, we travel into Belfast, we can see the changes in terms of new buildings, in terms of people's attitudes. Things have definitely improved. But the process of building peace takes a long time. One generation isn't enough, it's two generations, three generations. We're currently in a state of political difficulty in Northern Ireland. There's no government. There's been no government here since January. The two main parties, Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party, they can't agree on how to move forward. There are issues that link back to the past. What is the past? Who were the victims? Who were the people who carried out the, 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 the crimes? How do we deal with them all? Issues of an Irish Language Act. Issues in terms of moving towards a new political world that's accepted by many. Brexit was one of those issues that the parties did not need. It just adds an extra complication to the whole process of trying to get government back up and running in Northern Ireland. 
the idea of Brexit being fundamentally destabilising to the process here is really, really very important one and needs to be stressed, I think. First of all, the two major parties here took polar opposite positions in relation to the referendum last year. Sinn Féin advocated Remain, DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, advocated Leave. And in a way, it's reopened the sovereignty fracture in Northern Ireland. For example, the border on the island of Ireland now potentially becomes an external border of the European Union. And the risks that a hard border may emerge, I think, are worrying very, very many people on this island. The problem is the UK and Ireland have either been out together or in together. This will be a a novel experience. The UK will be out and Ireland will be in and Ireland will be one of the EU 27. So one of the intriguing political components of all this is that it's re-energised a conversation on this island about Irish unity. But it's opened up, I think, a very interesting new line of questions around economic well-being. Where, in fact, will Northern Ireland be better positioned? It's opened a real conversation about carving out some form of special status or unique arrangements that will reflect the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland. One of the things that I'd like to underline, particularly from a constitutional perspective, is that this idea of creating some kind of special status is not unique or novel because the Good Friday Agreement, everything that's happened here in some senses, has already created a special set of circumstances. So I think the real argument, both within the UK and Ireland at the EU level, is, well, if Northern Ireland is to enjoy some kind of special arrangements that avoid that hard border, that protect what is here now, uh, what would that look like? So the ground is moving rapidly on to solutions, proposals, as to what sort of shape you might put around that legally and politically. I agree with you, Colin. It goes back to this Good Friday Agreement. It goes back to the idea, how do you bring two communities, loosely defined, together again? Because both of them have different visions about the future, where they want to be. In many ways, the Good Friday Agreement papered over this issue. It sort of solved it temporarily, not in the longer term, because the constitutional issue has always been alive and well in, in the terms of Northern Ireland about British, Irish identities. And identity politics is really strong. But over the last 20 years, it's begun to fall further back. People begin to think about new futures, economics, politics. But Brexit has brought it right back up to the agenda as issue number one. And it poses problems for the two leading political parties, Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party. And I think they're both in a Brexit trap. The DUP, I think they gambled. Lots of people gambled in that referendum, David Cameron being the obvious one. But I think the DUP also gambled. I think they thought... I myself thought that people would vote to remain. But Brexit suddenly throws a real spanner in the works because now they've got to think about, okay, the public have voted for Brexit in the UK as a single constituency. That's issue number one. But the other thing they have got to recognise and really don't do that is the fact that the majority here voted to remain. And while it's true that a majority of the nationals community, over 90% voted for the UK to remain in the European Union, the majority of Unionist voters voted to leave, but you've got to break that down a little bit further because a lot of those AB social groups with, that would have come under the unionist uh, tag or label actually voted to remain. So there's divisions there as well within Northern Irish society. So it's not just quite nationalists against the unionists, there's more going on as well. 
But I think the DUP have found themselves in a trap in, in the sense now that the UK is moving towards Brexit. Can they risk the economic fallout from Brexit? And the big issue is what does Brexit look like? And it's back to your point, Colin, about if it's a hard border, that hard border raises all sorts of issues. There's a lot about economics and what you can do with the border and how you can make it easier. But it really is about the politics. And I don't want to go too far and say that actually it's going to threaten the peace process. That's going too far. But it unsettles what might have been achieved in the last 20 years because we've got to remember on both sides of the community there are still pockets who haven't bought into the peace process, both on the unionist side and the nationalist side. We had earlier this year another national election, the third election in three years that provided a very unexpected result. This time it was Theresa May not getting the majority that everyone thought she was going to get. This is bad news for the Conservatives, but actually for one party, the Democratic Unionist Party, this was seen to be good news. Were there now 10 MPs? They prop up the May government and they're going to try and get concessions. Again, they were Brexiteer-minded, so they were going to vote happily with Theresa May's Brexit strategy, ignoring the fact that a majority of the people here had actually voted to remain, which may come back to haunt them a little bit later. But their condition for signing up to this agreement, with the supply and confidence uh, motion to support the Conservatives, they wanted money. The resolution was that the UK government would agree to give £1.5 to Northern Ireland, What's become clear three months later is there's no timetable for when this money is going to come. It's been hinted it's going to be locked into the budget they discussed in November. Will it come in stages? How much of the money will they actually get and over what duration? Theresa May, could she be toppled? If she's toppled, does that agreement still exist or will it last? The DUP, if they get the money, great and good for them. But I think there's another trap here. And moving closer to the Conservatives, they run the risk of the mainstream British press looking at the DUP and the media already beginning to talk about, well, who are these 10 members of the DUP? What do they actually believe in? There's also an issue underlying the unionist side of all of these things. Does GB, that's Scotland, England and Wales, do they still want Northern Ireland? Do they connect with Northern Ireland? You've got the DUP and other unionist parties believing they totally do and they're more British than the British themselves. But actually, I do wonder. I think one of the things that's possible to neglect is what's happening in the other major community here at the moment. One of the interesting outworkings of the Westminster election in June is that the three Social Democratic and Labour Party MPs, the SDLP, all lost their seats. Since Sinn Féin have a principled position that they do not take their seats in the Westminster Parliament, effectively nationalism, if you want to put it crudely, doesn't have a voice in the House of Commons. The risk is with Brexit that people are retreating back into their comfort zones. In other words, the DUP gravitates towards London and Westminster and nationalism and Republicans of Sinn Féin gravitate towards Dublin and prioritising elections there. Part of that is that the SDLP and Sinn Féin now emphasising a border poll, the idea that there should be a referendum, if you like, two referendums in fact on this island, on whether to leave the UK. What that then leads me on to, and I think it's been misunderstood in some of the conversations that you hear around Westminster, is that the idea of, if you like, equal citizenship here, that people have a right to be British or Irish or both as they may so choose, that has implications that have not been practically worked through for British and Irish citizens living here. Because Brexit means effectively that people who want to identify singularly as British citizens and people who want to identify singularly as Irish citizens will now be separated 
by EU membership. One of those categories will be an EU citizen and other won't be. So I think some of the complications around Britishness and Irishness and the Good Friday Agreement framework have yet to be followed through and to some of the practical detail. And we need answers to some of those questions. A major aspect of this debate is the common travel area. If you look at statements from the UK government, of the Irish government, and even from the European Union, all of them are absolutely clear the importance of the common travel area. What is a common travel area? Well, at the moment, it's a travel zone between the UK and Ireland, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man that facilitates free movement, if you like, with nationals of the common travel area. But a concern that I would have in the conversations that are happening at the moment is that many people seem to think that the common travel area is more than it actually is. I think we need to have a closer look about what exactly the common travel area is, what it actually means, and probably most importantly for the time ahead, whether we need further codification in both the UK and Ireland in domestic law and policy. A further question I have in my own mind, and this is complicated, I think, by Ireland's continuing membership of the European Union, is whether some kind of new British-Irish bilateral agreement is also needed in addition to domestic legislation to underpin some of this. So I think the headline for me is common travel area, much talked about. Its basis is uncertain. People think there are things there that there are not. It needs to be, if it's going to work in the future, legally tied down. And some of the rights, for example, that Irish citizens may enjoy in a post-Brexit context, they really do need to be legally codified. Because I think what people might find is they're not there when they come to rely on them in the future. I agree with all of that. The common travel area first came into play in 1923. It was after a partition of Ireland. It has been suspended on several occasions. It was suspended during the the war when people uh, from this part of the world had to show their passports when they moved back to Great Britain. That didn't go down very well in the unions community. But it wasn't an automatic right to move around. It was difficult to move from what would have been the Republic of Ireland into Northern Ireland up to 20, 30 years ago because why were you moving? Were you moving for work? So there were questions asked. It worked when both the UK and Ireland, as they still are, are members of the European Union. But the questions then become what happens when one is no longer a member? Can you still keep those rights? And as we begin to have more and more of these discussions, you begin to realise how many more issues are all falling under the Brexit sort of umbrella. Mm. And the task of getting all of these done, because they're going to have to get them agreed essentially by October next year. It isn't March 2019 when the UK will leave because there's going to be a process of ratification. And we're already getting signs that actually they're not going as quickly or as uh, as well as the government would have wished. The UK government, Cameron said it before he stepped down as Prime Minister, Theresa May has said it countless times, the idea that we're looking to engage with the regions of the devolved administrations. And you think, that's great. Well, Northern Ireland currently doesn't have a government, hasn't had a government since January. We could talk a lot about that, how much it actually matters. The big issue for Northern Ireland is agriculture and the fact that Northern Ireland exports a lot of agricultural commodities, whereas GB actually imports all of them. I think it does matter that Northern Ireland doesn't have a government. I think it does matter hugely that there's no voice actually here because elected officials in London and senior civil servants in London, they're looking for elected officials to give them their views, and we just don't have them here. I'm strongly critical of the two main parties here, that's Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party. They've never really had much interest in the European Union. It's always been a side issue for them. 
If the referendum had gone to remain, it would have carried on as before. But now they're being forced to take positions on what this actually means about Brexit. And what they've now got to try and work out is who is providing the voice for Northern Ireland. What mechanisms are there for providing a voice? What we're beginning to see is the business community here and also the voluntary sector beginning to pick up many of these Brexit issues and what they actually mean and trying to influence where they can. Other bodies could be in London. They are contacting London, but there's also quite a bit of access going to Dublin. What's happening in recent weeks is I, I think we can see a stronger role for the Northern Ireland office, which much reduced in staff after devolution, but they're now beginning to pick up, they have picked up the, some of the key issues for Northern Ireland, and they're taking them straight back to London to try and deal with. And the other key player, of course, is, is, is Ireland. The Irish government's preparing at least 18 months before the EU referendum uh, vote on what Brexit might actually look like. They didn't want Brexit, they want the UK to vote to, to remain, but they were ready to begin to move on many of these issues once the Brexit vote became clear. In the days of direct rule before devolution, the Northern Office was, was the forum when everything was decided. Uh, they worked with the civil servants. A lot of Northern Irish legislation replicated, in many ways, what would have been English legislation. Uh, the Northern Office took much more of a back seat under devolution, but we may be heading back to direct rule again if we can't get out of the current political impasse. I really yeah, agree. It's absolutely essential that the, the institutions are up and running again, the executive, the assembly, so as all the other interlocking components can work effectively as well, including the North-South Ministerial Council on this, this island too. The main parties disagree fundamentally on the way forward, and I don't think that disagreement is going away anytime soon. Where there is a glimmer, I think, is that we begin to see similar-ish language being used around special circumstances, special status, unique circumstances, particular issues that affect Northern Ireland. But I think when you map that forward into some of the practical recommendations and the sorts of Brexit the DUP want, for example, that can look very different in practice. Part of the problem is, is here, the local politicians have a very bad press. We have problems with schools, we have problems with education, and huge waiting lists, and they blame the local politicians and they see the politicians squabbling over a variety of issues but not doing the job they think they elect them to actually uh, to do. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, while we can say that a lot of people want to see the institutions up and running, there are people who are very, very critical of the performance of the Northern Ireland Executive. I was a member of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and I was involved in the drafting process of a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland in 2008. I was involved in the work around a Charter of Rights for the Island of Ireland and I've been involved in the equality conversations here. And there's a real sense in this society that nearly 20 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, with all the promises around rights and equality, that many of those haven't really been delivered. So that's playing a big part in the current discussions. You have a government at Westminster who's notionally committed at some future point to repealing the Human Rights Act, is in the process of leaving the European Union, making absolutely clear it wants to have nothing to do with the Charter of Fundamental Rights either, then people are rightly, I think, quite concerned and worried. And they're looking for those guarantees to be written down in law. My own sense is until that happens, it's going to be hard work to try and build trust. And trust is a big issue in this part of the world. It's building trust between those two main political parties. My own sense of this is that we've had many people here, including in the universities, we've had politicians and civil society for the last 20 years working very, very hard 
entirely in the context of the European Union of trying to hold this thing together, to try and make it work, however flawed and inadequate it is, and to try and take it forward to another place. There's a tragic component to all of this. Uh, We're often lambasted here in terms of Northern Ireland, but I often say we, we have a normal society here. Any society with the sort of circumstances we have would look very much like our society here. In terms of managing that, I'm speaking very, very personally. I live in Belfast, but I'm from Derry in the northwest. When I was growing up, without giving away my age here in the 70s and 80s, we could see the border. And when we went for holidays in Donegal or whatever, it was very, very clear what a hard, securitized border looks like. And I think people here don't want to go back to that. I think Lee is absolutely spot on. Nobody's saying the peace process is going to fall apart overnight. But we could retreat back into a position where people are happy in their comfort zones of disengagement and not talking to each other and running off to their respective national centres of power in London and Dublin and the progress that has been made here withers away. I think that just would not be a helpful way forward for this society. I would say this is a lawyer, but I do think that one of the weaknesses of the last 20 years was a failure to tie down in a legally coherent way some of the things that people politically take for granted. And I think that is a job of work in the time ahead. I think the challenges for the politicians here, if there's no deal between the UK government and the EU, what does a full hard Brexit actually look like? And that should sober them all back up. It comes back to the board, and particularly, but it's the economics, it's the trade, which is crucially important for this part of the world. Also the politics. For a long time, there was discussion about there is going to be no hard border. Firms are just going to trade the way they actually have done in the past. But you'll still need to have some form of border check actually there doesn't have to be on the border, it can be six miles back on either side, but you will stop certain lorries just to check all these rules of origin, the technicalities of all of the goods, where they come from, what they're made from, of. They will have to take place somewhere. And I think people are beginning to realise, in all political parties here, the problems that lie ahead in terms of the final deal the UK government may actually agree. Do we live in hope? I, I suspect, on a positive note to end, I think we assume we are heading for Brexit. For this part of the world, the solution, and we could talk about various solutions, the one that's just been brought forward today, well, it's been around for today, but it's gone live today, is as a survey, is this idea that Northern Ireland should be given honorary status in the EU, which is a little bit far-fetched, but it's an attempt. I think the, the real way to go forward is for people in this part of the world to say, UK, what you need to do, you're leaving the EU, we get it, customs union. Customs union with the EU doesn't solve all the issues but it solves many of them, in particular relation to Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland in terms of free movement. It won't be the same as as other models. It'll probably need a little bit of leeway, maybe, which is against the rules normally, to be able to sign agreements with third states. But from Northern Ireland's perspective, that would be the ultimate solution. If we're not a member of the EU, then the Customs Union is probably the next best thing. Something we do need to underline as well is that in a post-Brexit context, there is a really desperate need for a constitutional conversation about the UK. Because what this is all highlighting is that you can't take for granted that the current UK, the union state that exists now, will exist indefinitely into the future. And I think there needs to be 
a proper discussion about the constitutional dynamics of the UK as exists now. Because I think what you do notice is in this Brexit rush to get to exit day, whenever that may be, and to leave the European Union and repeal the European Communities Act 97-2 and all that, is a real sort of anti-constitutional mindset that people are somehow sabotaging the process when all they're asking for is proper accountability and scrutiny and that all they're very often asking for is that people take account of the diverse nature of the UK as it exists now. The big question I have for the next decade and the next 50 years is when is the conversation about the constitutional future of the UK going to start? Because it can't really keep going the way it's currently going. It looks very likely that devolved administrations in Scotland and Wales will not consent to what's happening around Brexit, which raises really profound existential questions about the constitutional future of an already fractured UK.